Oh, this is exciting stuff. Uh, and I hope you're excited. You have a part in this ministry. As you pray for and support Matt and Nora and Eva, thank you for being a part of this ministry. Well, they considered him to be the fastest man in the world. He was called the Flying Dutchman. And in the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris, France, he, Eric Little, was scheduled to run the 100-meter dash, an event that he was almost guaranteed to win and take home the gold medal for Great Britain. However, just a few days before that race was to be run, Eric Little discovered that the qualifying heats for the 100-meter dash were going to be run on a Sunday. Now, Eric Little was a strong Christian with strong convictions about the Lord's Day. And when he realized that he was going to have to qualify on a Sunday, he simply said, I'm not going to run. Now, as you can imagine, a great uproar followed. The Olympic Committee of Great Britain called an emergency meeting. They called Eric Little and they said, you've got to do this. He refused. He was then summoned to a personal meeting with the Prince of Wales, who also said, Eric, you've got to do this. He remained steadfast. Finally, he received a telegram from the British Prime Minister saying, Eric, you must run this race. He said, I will not. And he did not. A lot of people said, Eric, man, what a waste. Being a Christian cost you a gold medal. It cost you fame. It cost you fortune. It cost you a great future. What a waste. And yet in refusing to run, Eric Little stirred his generation. And he demonstrated that Jesus Christ was more precious than anything else in his life. More precious than fame. More precious than future. More precious than a great future and a great acclaim. This morning, students, you graduates especially, I want to ask you something. I want to ask all of us this. Where are the radicals for Jesus Christ today? Where are those who will stand up and say, there is nothing in my life that is more precious than Jesus Christ. Not fame, not fortune, not future. I will live for His glory. I will be His man. I will be His woman. I will live my life for His glory. Will you be one of them? Students, I want to get in your face a little bit this morning, if you'll let me. And I really want to get in the face of all of us here today because this is not just a message for these students. But I want to say to you students, you're standing on the precipice of a great adventure. 
that is ahead of you. And I do not want you to live your lives in a valley of insignificance, mesmerized by the spiritually anesthetizing draw of the American dream, which is saying to you, you need to be pursuing a good education, a good job, raise a good family, make a good fortune, have a great future, and have a great time. I want to say to you this morning, you were created for far more than that. And so were you. And so was I. And so is every one of us. So this morning, whether you're a student with with all of your life ahead of you, or whether you're a senior adult here this morning, retired, wanting to make the most out of those last years of your life, or whether you're somewhere in between all of this, I want to point you to a verse this morning that might be one of the most intimidating, one of the most frightening verses in all of Scripture. It's in your message guide. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's verses 19 and 20. We'll put it on the screen. Would you look at it with me? Paul writing says, now you belong to God. You do not belong to yourselves. You have been bought, God bought you, with a great price. What Paul is saying is if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, listen to me, your life is not your own. You do not belong to yourself. He has bought you, Christ has bought you at the price of his own death so that really now you doubly belong to God. Do you realize that? You doubly belong to Him. You belong to Him, number one, because He made you. You're His by right of creation. But secondly, He bought you at the price of His Son, Jesus Christ. You doubly belong to God. Your life is not your own. That means you're not free to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it with your life. It means you're not free to pursue your own desires. You're not free to chase your own dreams. You're just not free to do that. Restricting, huh? Box you in a little? Maybe? Take away some of your freedom? Is that what you're thinking? That's that's what the world thinks. That's what the culture tells us. But what I want us to understand this morning is that is not what the Word of God tells us. And this morning, as we return to our study of Philippians... I want us to look at the example of three people here. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 30, three people who understood. They're going to be living illustrations for us of what it means to understand that your life is not your own, that you don't belong to yourself, that you're not free to do whatever you want to do with your life, that you've been bought with a great price. And if you will understand that this morning and embrace that, and if we will apply that this morning, then it will enable us to live our lives with a single purpose, with a single passion, and to demonstrate day in and day out, every moment of every day, the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. I've got, uh, I've got three things up here this morning that I hope will, will help you remember what we're going to talk about. this morning. I've got a picture, okay? I want you to remember this picture. 
I've got a pair of eyeglasses. And I don't know if you can see these or not. A pair of dice. Kind of strange thing to bring into church. But uh, would you get that for me, please? <laughs> Thank you, Ruth. Once again, I'm glad I'm not ruthless this morning. Okay. Let's, let's look at these three things. I, three people. The first one is the author of this book, the Apostle Paul himself. And in, in these opening verses here that we're going to be looking at, verses 17 and 18. Now, I've underlined, I'm not going to read all of these. I've underlined the part of these descriptive texts that I want us to focus on this morning. And Paul says, speaking of his own life, look at this now. Paul says, I am being poured out like a drink offering. Picture, I am being poured out like a drink offering. Now, in order for you to understand what Paul is talking about there, you really, you really need to understand a little bit about the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, in, in that economy, a worshiper would come into the house of God, a worshiper would come into the temple, and he would bring with him an animal to be offered to the Lord, to be sacrificed to the Lord. So the animal would be killed, its blood would be poured out upon the altar, and then that animal would be burned. It would be totally consumed by fire. It was called a burnt offering. And in doing that, that act symbolized the worshiper saying, God, I am totally committed to you. I am giving every part of myself to you. I am holding nothing back. Here I am. I totally commit myself to you. Then after the burnt offering was given, the worshiper would offer what was called the drink offering. And the priest would take a certain amount of wine and he would pour it out on the altar. And because that altar was still scorching hot, from the burnt offering, what do you think happened to the liquid that was poured out on the altar? It would go up in a hiss of steam and a puff of smoke, instantly vaporized, totally gone. And the burnt offering and the drink offering always went together. So what the worshiper was saying was this. The worshiper was saying, God, I totally give myself to you. Here's the burnt offering. But in order to illustrate what that really means for my life, Lord, I now pour myself out before you. I pour out any ambition that I might have for my own future. I pour out any right that I might have to, to pursue my own personal happiness. I pour out any claim that I might have to go my own way and do my own thing. I commit to be totally spent, used up, consumed in devotion to you and in devotion to your will for my life. Now that is exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul, if you know his story. As a young man, Paul had been brought up, he had been trained under the greatest teachers of Judaism. Everybody knew him to be this rising star among the Jewish people. He was on the way up. You might remember a couple of weeks ago when we were ahead in chapter 3, Paul sort of listed his credentials when he said, hey, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of, of Benjamin. 
a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, Paul was Paul was definitely on his way up. He said, you know, concerning zeal, if you want to talk about being zealous for something, I was a persecutor of the church. If you want to talk about righteousness as, as, as the law deals with it, he said, I was absolutely blameless. He was everything a, a, a good Jew aspired to be and even more. Listen, his, his, his position was secure. Man, his success was guaranteed. His future was bright. It's where he was as a young man, but then all of a sudden, on the road to Damascus, he met the risen Christ who converted his heart, totally transformed his life, and suddenly all the things that Paul thought were so great, suddenly all of the things that Paul thought were going to ensure his success in life, he said, I now count them as worthless, as useless for the greater cause of knowing Christ and being absolutely captured by Him. And I want to tell you something. That commitment to Christ cost Paul dearly. Dearly. Read the story of his life throughout the, throughout the New Testament. He was beaten. He was stoned. He suffered from innumerable, innumerable illnesses because of his missionary journeys. He faced multiple imprisonments. He was shipwrecked. In fact, uh, the book we're studying right now, Philippians, you know because we've talked about this. As he was writing this book, he was sitting even now in a Roman prison cell waiting to see whether or not he was going to be executed for his faith. And I can't help but think this morning, what in the world would, would Paul's former friends have thought if they had seen him sitting in that prison cell, knowing what he had once been? I imagine they would have shaken their heads and said, Paul, 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 man, what a waste. You had everything going for you. Man, you had it made. You were, you were on your way up. You had such promise. You were so brilliant. We had such high hopes for you, Paul. But you threw it all away for this Jesus of yours. And now, look at you. You're a criminal. Man, you're a pitiful prisoner. You're sitting there now depending on welfare from somebody else to meet your needs. You've wasted your life, Paul. You could have been so great. You could have been such a success. But instead, what a waste. What a tragic, embarrassing, shameful waste. They might have said the same thing about a young man by the name of William Borden. By the time Billy Borden, as he was known, was uh, graduating from high school, guys, you'll appreciate this, he was already wealthy. He was born the heir to the Borden Dairy Company, which today is a, is a corporation worth over $2 billion. He was heir to that fortune. He finished high school. He graduated from uh, Yale University, earned another degree from Princeton, they had it made. When he was 16 years old, his parents sent him on a round-the-world tour. And as Billy Borden found his way through North Africa, Middle East, Asia, 
Europe. He began to be burdened about the world's hurting people. And at 16 years of age, he wrote home and he told his parents that he believed God was calling him to be a missionary. One friend of his was just astounded and expressed his disbelief over what Borden was talking about. And he said, Billy, if if you follow through on this desire to be a missionary, you're going to throw your life away. In response... Billy Borden turned in the back of his Bible and he wrote two words, no reserves, no reserves. After he graduated from Yale University, he turned down several high-paying job offers. Again, his friends questioned his wisdom, said, what are you doing, man? He turned to the back of his Bible and he wrote down two more words, no retreats, no retreats. After he graduated from Princeton, having studied theology, Borden left for China. He felt called of God to give his life ministering to the Kansu people, a Muslim people group. And because he was going to be ministering to Muslims, he wanted to learn Arabic. So on the way to China, he stopped in Egypt where he studied Arabic. There, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. Many people looked at that and they said, this guy wasted his life. He had so much ahead of him. He had fame. He had fortune. He could have done anything, but he wasted his life. But after his death, in the back of his Bible, they found he had written two more words. After no reserves and no retreats, he had written, no regrets. No regrets. Borden's life and all that it could have been had been poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. He said, all I am, Jesus, and all I have, I pour out for you. My life is not my own. I do not belong to myself. You have bought me with a great price. I give my life to you. Many people said, what a waste. Gave away all his money. What a waste. He lost his life at 25 years of age. But here's the truth, students and everybody else. All of that would have happened anyway, right? His money would have gotten spent somewhere anyway. The question is, where was it going to be spent? And for what great cause? He was going to die someday anyway. The question was not whether he was going to die. The question was, where was he going to die? How was he going to die? And for what great cause was he going to die? Here's the truth, students and everybody else. We are all pouring out our lives. We are all losing our lives every single day. That Do you realize every single day that we live is one less day that we have to live? We are pouring out our lives, church, every day. So the question is not, are we pouring out our lives? The question is, what are we pouring our lives out on? Are we pouring them out on the temporary things that will vanish in their using? Or are we pouring our lives out on the things that last for eternity, that make a difference, that are significant for the cause and the sake of Jesus Christ? Got a question for you. What's your life being poured out on today? 
I can promise you it is being poured out on something. Right now, even as we sit here, your life is being spent. You're pouring out time. You're pouring out energy. You're pouring out money and effort. You're pouring out thoughts and talents. Every day, you're pouring your life out. What are you pouring your life out on? Can I say to you this morning, students, can I say to this to all of us, pour out your life on the things that really count. Pour it out on the things that really matter. Pour it out for the sake of Christ. Come to the end of your life and be able to say, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. You can only do that when you come to the point that you understand your life is not your own. You do not belong to yourself. You have been bought with a great price. Pouring out my life, emptying myself of self. That's what it means that your life is not your own. Second example that's listed for us here is the life of Timothy. Timothy is all about looking out for the interests of Christ. So I've got these glasses up here. Living your life from a different perspective. Looking at life differently. So that's what these glasses are for, to help us capture in our minds the need of looking at life, all of life differently. Verses 19 through 24, Paul talks about Timothy and he says this in verse 21, I have no one like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Watch this. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Man, this is a sad verse. This is a heartbreaking verse. Paul is saying everybody's selfish. Everybody's self-centered. And I want you to know that word everyone. If you look at it in the original language of the New Testament, it means one and all, without exception. Paul is saying there is no one else with me here in Rome except Timothy who is not consumed with his or her own life. And Paul's speaking here also in the present tense, which if you, if you translate that literally, what Paul is saying is they are all continually, habitually looking out for their own interests. This is their bent. This is their pattern. This is their practice. Everyone looks out for their own interest. Man. See, when Paul looked around at other people and even other Christians, you know what he saw? He saw indifference toward the things of Christ. He saw obsession with personal affairs. He saw preoccupation with the needs of daily life. He saw selfishness and apathy toward the things of the kingdom of God. But Timothy was the one single solitary exception. He stood apart from the rest. He put the cause of Christ first, and that made him different. It made him distinct. It made him out of the ordinary. He was a rare breed. I want to tell you something. Listen to me. Folks who look out for their own interests, they're a dime a dozen. You don't have any trouble finding them because they're most of the people around us looking out for their own interests. They're all around us. Paul said, Timothy's not like that. He's not like everybody else. He's rare. He's unique. 
Because he understands his life is not his own, so he puts the interest of Christ first. It occurred to me this week that every one of us in this room is living our lives either in Philippians 1.21 or in Philippians 2.21. Do you remember Philippians 1.21? We looked at it a while back. Philippians 1.21 says, For to me to live is Christ. Philippians 2.21 says, Everyone looks out for their own interests. Another question. Where are you living your life today? Are you living it in Philippians 1.21? For to me to live is Christ, or are you living it in Philippians 2.21? Everyone looks out for his own interest. I want to tell you about Anne Hazeltine. Anne Hazeltine was a young lady, youngest of five children. She was doted on by her family. She had a wonderfully happy childhood. In her early teens, She was sparkling, she was popular, she was very attractive, she was always in demand at parties and social functions. In her youth, her main concerns, she said, were her friends and her socializing. In fact, her father actually, they were wealthy, her father actually built built a dance, kind of a dance hall on the back of their house. And it sort of became the social center of the town in which they lived. Like most families in that town, the Hasseltines attended church. But religion was pretty much undemanding. Pretty much undemanding. And the main business of life for the Hasseltines and everybody else was enjoyment and amusement. So she was consumed with the things of the world, largely directed, she said, by peer pressure. And she, I want you to hear how she described her understanding of Christianity at that age. And I want to read it to you right from her diary. This this is a direct quote. She said, during the first 16 years of my life, I very seldom felt any serious impressions. I was early taught by my mother, though she was then ignorant of the nature of true religion. I was taught by her the importance of abstaining from those vices, such as telling falsehoods, disobeying my parents, taking what was not my own, etc. She also taught me that if I were a good child, I should, at death, escape that dreadful hell, the thought of which sometimes filled me with alarm and terror. I therefore made it a matter of conscience to avoid the above-mentioned sins, to say my prayers night and morning, and to abstain from those things that I knew were wrong, never doubting that such a course of conduct would ensure my salvation. At the age of 12 or 13, I attended the academy at Bradford, where I was exposed to many more temptations than before. I now began to attend dances, parties. I found my mind completely occupied with the things of the world. For two or three years, I scarcely felt an anxious thought relative to the salvation of my soul, even though I was rapidly heading toward eternal doom. I was surrounded by friends who were wild and volatile, just like myself, and I often thought myself one of the happiest creatures on earth. But my time was mostly occupied with clothes, boys, and in contriving amusements for the evenings. My time was wholly spent in vanity and in triflings. Now, And from time to time, she said, from time to time, I would be convicted about sin in my life. I I knew I was doing things I had no business being involved in. But because of the peer pressure and my desire to be popular, 
I was too embarrassed to be open about a desire to be godly, about a desire to really follow hard after Christ. But at 17 years of age, she had an incredible, life-changing, life-altering encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly she was overwhelmed, she said, by an acute awareness of the majesty and the holiness of God, a sense of my own sinfulness before such a God, and a great desire to bring glory to God through my life. And she set out to live her life from that point forward completely for him. She became a school teacher. She began to pour herself into those students, seeking to win them to Christ by her testimony and by her example. When she got a little bit older, she met a young man by the name of Adoniram Judson. I don't know if that name's familiar to you or not, but Adoniram Judson was one of the first Protestant missionaries to be sent out from America to other parts of the world. And Adoniram Judson and Anne Hazeltine fell in love. They decided to get married. Adoniram shared with her uh, God's call to be a missionary. She indicated she wanted to accept that, so Adoniram Judson wrote a letter, listen to this now, he wrote a letter to Anne's father asking for her hand in marriage and asking permission to take her with him to the country of India. I want to read this to you again verbatim. This This is what he wrote to Anne's father. He said, I have to now ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every difficult and, and, and hard experience of want and, dispre- and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps to a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home, who died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing souls in India, for the sake of Zion, for the sake of the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hopes of soon meeting your daughter in the next world, in the world of glory, in heaven, with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her, Savior, from those heathen people saved through her testimony from eternal woe and despair. That's what he asked. Can you imagine as a dad being asked that of your daughter? Her dad decided wisely that he would let Anne answer. And she did. And she said yes. And they left for India. During those years of missionary service, Anne had three pregnancies. The first ended in a miscarriage as they moved from India to Burma. Later, their second son was born. He died eight months later. Anne's husband was thrown into a Burmese prison camp where he spent two years, Anne, trying to care for him, becoming ill herself. While he was in prison, while Adoniram was in prison, Anne discovered she was pregnant with their third child, Maria. Maria lived only six months after Anne herself died at the age of 37, her body racked by tropical illnesses, emaciated from lack of proper food, beaten down by the ravages of pioneer missionary life, just as her husband had promised. Was it a waste? Just before Anne left for India, 
She penned these words, and I'll read them to you also. She said, I have at length come to the conclusion that I must spend my days in a heathen land. I'm a creature of God, and he has an undoubted right to do with me as seems good in his sight. I rejoice because I'm in his hands. And when I'm called to face danger, to pass through scenes of terror and distress, he will inspire me with fortitude and enable me to trust him. Jesus is faithful. His promises are precious. Were it not for these considerations, I should sink down in despair, especially as no female has, to my knowledge, ever left the shores of America to spend her life among the heathen. And they hadn't. She was the first female missionary to ever leave America to go to another land. She said, I do not know that I shall have a single female companion where I'm going, but whether I spend my days in India or America, I desire to spend them in the service of God and then be prepared to spend an eternity in his presence. It's a different way of looking at life, isn't it? It's a different perspective on life. Seeking first the interests of Christ. Third example we find in verses 25 through 30. Paul tells us about a man, his name was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a member of the church at Philippi. The Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus to Rome to take a gift to Paul from that church and to spend time with Paul, encouraging him during his imprisonment. Somewhere on that journey to Rome, either, either along the way or maybe after he arrived in Rome, we don't know, but Epaphroditus became seriously ill. In fact, he became so ill, this text tells us that, that he almost died. But in verses 29 and 30, Paul tells us something else about Epaphroditus that sets him apart. He says, welcome him in the Lord and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. I want you to think about that phrase that I've got underlined, risking his life. In the common language of the people of Paul's day, that word translating risking his life was a gambling term. It meant to make a wager. It meant to make a bet. It meant to roll the dice. What was Paul saying? He was saying Epaphroditus was willing to gamble his own life for the sake of Christ. He was willing to throw himself out there on the game board of life and risk it all to do what God had called him to do. Epaphroditus was God's gambler. He gambled everything. He continually put his life on the line for Jesus Christ. He understood that his life was not his own, that he did not belong to himself, that he had been bought with a great price. C.T. Studd grew up in England, grew up in the home of a father who was very wealthy, made a fortune from business in other countries. And so he grew up with wealth, he grew up with privilege, he grew up with prestige. He was the heir to that fortune. He was a successful college student at Cambridge. He was a star cricket player. But one day, missionary Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission, came to Cambridge and made an appeal for student missionaries to come to China. And C.T. Studd, along with six others, responded and said, we will go. They were dubbed the Cambridge Seven. 
And they left England and they went to China to serve as missionaries with the China Inland Mission. C.T. Studd served there for many years until his father died and left him with that huge fortune. All of his friends were waiting, realizing C.T.'s going to come home now. He's going to get his inheritance. He'll, he'll have a good life, but he didn't. He gave away every single penny of his inheritance to the China Inland Mission and to other Protestant evangelical missionary causes. In some ways, he was a lot like Epaphroditus because he became ill on the mission field. He had to go home to England to recover. But once he recovered, he left England again, this time for India and finally for Africa, where he spent the rest of his life. But before he died, he penned one final letter home, and he said this. I want you to hear what he had to say. C.T. Studd said this, Now that I believe I'm nearing my departure from this world, I have a few things to rejoice in. Number one, that God called me to China, and I went in spite of the utmost opposition from all my loved ones. Number two, that I joyfully acted as Christ told that rich young man in Luke 18 to act, and he did. He gave away all of his belongings to the poor and to other causes for Christ. Number three, that I deliberately, at the call of God, gave up my life for this great work, and whenever God gave me a task to do, I never refused it. Rolling the dice, gambling it all for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. Here's the question. Is that something you have ever considered? Have you? Have you ever considered it? Risking it all for the sake of Christ, gambling it all, throwing your life out there with no guarantees of what the future holds, but doing it for the sake of Christ and His kingdom because you understand that your life is not your own. Let me tell you something this morning, students, and let me say this to every one of, you, uh, of the rest of us here. Christianity has largely lost its teeth in America today. It has lost its power, and it has lost its passion. Christianity for so many today is just a series of meetings, a series of events, a little fellowship, a little coffee, and man, we're good to go. There is no risk. There is no challenge. There is no commitment. There is no courage. There is no great cause. There is nothing encouraging you to be all that God has called you to be. Could I be a voice this morning to you students? Could I be a voice to you this morning church and say, would you be willing to risk it all to be all that God has saved you and called you to be? Or are you going to settle for something less than that? Listen, I understand that from the standpoint of the values and the priorities of the world, following Jesus looks like a waste of life. In fact, sometimes people will tell you it looks like a stupid, tragic waste because if you're a serious follower of Jesus Christ, it's going to mean suffering. It's going to mean sacrifice. It's going to mean persecution. It's going to mean, mean loss in this world. I mean, Jesus demands of us what to the world seems like a seemingly pointless denial of many of the things that make this earthly life tolerable. Jesus calls us to walk a path that leads us in the opposite direction from what everybody else is doing and where they're going. It can result in loss of reputation. It can result in loss of intellectual respectability. It can result in loss of status according to the vision and the understanding and the wisdom of the world. It looks like such a wasted life. 
is it? Or is it what God has called us and created us to be? I need to finish one story that I didn't finish, and I'll be done. I want to go back to Eric Little for just a moment. When Eric Little determined that he would not run the 100 meters because the qualifying heats were being run on a Sunday, he was approached by another member of the British track and field team, a man by the name of Harold Abrams, who said, Eric, I'll switch events with you. Harold Abrams was Jewish, and so he didn't have any issue with running on a Sunday. But here was the problem. Harold Abrams ran the 400 meter, not the 100 meter. A vastly different event. An event that Eric Little had never trained for. He wasn't good at it. But he said, okay, I'll, I'll switch with you. And he did. And on the day that the 400 meter race was to be run, another athlete, this time from the American track and field team, a, a Christian, right before that race was to be run, run, ran and slipped a note into Eric's little hand, Eric Little's hands. And that note said, it's very simple. It said, God honors those who honor Him. God honors those who honor Him. Eric Little not only ran the 400 meter, he won the gold medal. He not only won the gold medal, but he set a world record that lasted for over a decade. And after he did that, let me tell you, he became a national hero. Anything he wanted, he could have had. All he had to say in England was jump, and everybody would have said, how high? He was revered. But exactly one year after winning the gold medal, Eric Little left it all to go serve as a missionary in China with the London Missionary Society, carrying the gospel to the back country of that great nation. When China was overrun by the Japanese and World War II broke out, Eric Little was captured, classified as an enemy combatant, and placed in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. There he was one of 1,300 prisoners housed in dormitories that were three feet by six feet. He was beaten. He was starved. He was denied medical care. And yet he organized athletic competitions. He taught hymns. And he taught the Bible and he shared the gospel with his fellow prisoners and with his captors. But then on February 21, 1945, just a month before China was liberated, Eric Little died in that Japanese prisoner of war camp. Was it a waste? Well, it would have been a waste. In fact, everything we've talked about this morning would be a waste if what the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ is not true. If this is not true, then yes, it's all a waste. But if it is true, if Jesus is who this book says He is, the very Son of God, who out of incredible love for us, left His home in heaven, came to this earth, wrapped Himself in our weakness, became part of the human family, gave His life on Calvary's cross that our sins might be forgiven, was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, 
one day is coming again to take his rightful place as the judge of all men, King of kings and Lord of lords. If this word is true, church, then it is a tragic waste to give your life over to anything other than Jesus Christ. It is a waste. If what the Bible says is true, and it is, then there is no price that could possibly be too high to pay for him. And there is no loss in terms of the world's treasure that could ever be too much to endure for his sake. That is what it means that your life is not your own. That's what it means that you have been bought with a great price. That's what it means to pour out your life, to empty yourself of self. That's what it means to look out for the interest of Christ. That's what it means to live with a different perspective on life. And that is what it means to risk it all, to gamble it all for the sake of Jesus Christ. Students, you're headed out into a great adventure. Walk in the adventure that God has for your life. Be willing to risk it. Be willing to pour it out. Be willing to look at life from a different perspective. Pursuing the things of Christ and not your own interests. Don't settle for anything less. Your life is not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You've been bought with a great price. Don't waste your life. You don't waste it either. Heavenly Father, in these closing moments, would you impress upon our hearts now the truths of your word? Yes, it's countercultural. Yes, it's running into the wind. Yes, it's swimming against the current. Yes, it's going against everything that this world tells us. People will shake their heads and say, my, 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 what an embarrassing, tragic waste. Look at what this Jesus will ask you to give up. Look at what he'll ask you to pour out. Putting your interest aside. Risking everything to follow him. That's what the world will say. This morning, the Spirit testifies And all of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior testify that there is no price too great. There is no cost too high for the one who gave his all for us. Lord, I pray now that we'll respond and we will leave this place today more committed than we ever have been before, more understanding than we ever have had understanding before that our lives are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We've been bought with a great price. May we be willing to say, Lord, today we risk it all for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. It's the prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me? So I'm going to take these. Here they go. Thrown out. Will your life be thrown out like that this morning? Will you do it? Would you say, here's my life? Here it is. I pour it out. 
I don't want to seek my own interests. I want to seek the interests of Christ. I gamble it all for your sake. If you need to respond this morning, this altar is open. I'll be glad to pray with you if, you if I can. If you need to come and pray as we sing, as our students lead us, you come as God leads you right now.